Okay, and we'll start at verse 1 of chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, thank you very much indeed, Laura, for that reading. And uh, Joe, for your introduction, and let me add my welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Um, do please keep that passage open uh, in front of you. And I may as well uh, come right out and say it. This is one of those passages that Christians, even Bible-loving Christians, as most of us would uh, probably describe ourselves here this morning, find a bit of an embarrassment. I mean, if you want the very opposite of virtue signaling to the world, this is it, isn't it? Because this passage seems to blow a great big raspberry at everything our Western secular culture holds dear. Freedom, equality, equal rights, self-expression, justice. Those are our society's most prized values, aren't they? And yet here we are in 2022 in the public gathering of a church, listening to a middle-aged male Jew from the first century and a middle-aged Englishman <laughs> explaining his words, instructing women how to wear their hair and makeup and what they can and cannot do in church and family life simply because they are women. Isn't this just the kind of injustice, inequality, bigotry and oppression that the last 50 years of sexual revolution has sought to crush? Isn't this exactly why Bible Christians get branded as the bad guys in our society? And if we want to connect with the world out there, isn't this one of those bits of the Bible that we should quietly retire? I mean, if people discover 
the people we're trying to reach with this good news of Jesus that we've thought about already, if people discover that we actually go along with this stuff, won't that damage our credibility in the eyes of the world? Won't it be disastrous to the mission? So much is this embarrassment the case that even among professing Bible Christians, the most we seem to be able to hope for is a kind of begrudging acknowledgement that this is what the Bible says, so we'd better put up with it. For example, one regular contributor to a popular Christian magazine put her frustrations that she could not preach like this. I quote, she says, I've grappled with the difficult passages about the role of women and how I've longed for them to say something other than they do. I've fought and wrestled with them, but cannot escape the basic principles. I've studied the debates, but cannot escape the clear instructions about male leadership. Despite trying very hard, I cannot escape from the truth. It seems from that sentiment, doesn't it, that God has lumbered us with a miserable, impractical doctrine that limits the usefulness of his work, is hopelessly out of date, detrimental to human happiness, frustrates the mission of the church, but we cannot escape it because it's the word of God. Well, in the light of that, my aim this morning is simple. As I've studied this passage afresh over the last couple of weeks, I've seen that far from being an embarrassment, there is an embarrassment of riches here. And I want to completely reverse our thinking. If there's any kind of sense in us, if the hairs at the back of our head are just beginning to rise in embarrassment in the face of God, I want to completely reverse that. And in particular, I want us to come away this morning convinced of three things. First, I want, if I can, and I know this is going to be difficult in the time we've got because there's a lot here, but I want, if I can, to show how this passage is clear. It's clear. See, one way that people often avoid the impact of passages like this, passages that are difficult because they're difficult to the world, is by making them torturously difficult to understand. But I want to try and convince us that this passage is not difficult to understand. It is confronting, it is countercultural, but it's not complicated. In the end, God is simply calling on men and women to live in the way He has made them. I want to make it sure, make us see that it's clear. Second thing I want to do is to convince us that it's beautiful. So I'm under no illusions that the editor of your favorite paper, whether it's The Guardian or The Mirror or The Telegraph, is going to write a column this week in praise of 1 Timothy 2. I'm, I'm not under any illusions of that. But as God's people, as those who love the word of God, we must do better than the attitude that I quoted from that magazine. We must not have this attitude that this is something we just wish we could escape. No, no, this comes from the hand of a loving creator who knows exactly what he's doing, who has made us lovingly, and has revealed to us the best way that we could live. This may go against the grain of our secular, anti-God culture, but that's because it's an anti-God culture. This goes with the grain of reality. It fits perfectly who we are and how we've been made, and therefore, it's beautiful. And I want us to see that before the end. But the third thing I want us to see this morning, and this is perhaps most surprising, is that this is strategic for the mission of the local church. And this is where I suspect some of our thinking will be pushed on the most this morning, because it certainly has been for me, as I've studied the passage again over the last few weeks. 
Notice that both halves of the passage begin the same way. Verse 1, I urge then, literally therefore, and verse 8, although it's sadly hidden in our translation, there's another therefore, I want. So the two halves of the passage begin the same way. I urge therefore, and I want therefore. Now when you come across the therefore, you ask what it's there for, don't you? And so this is tying the two halves of the passage together, but it's also tying this entire passage, chapter 2, to what has gone before, which, as Joe already reminded us, is Paul's charge to Timothy to fight the good fight, to silence the false teachers, 1 verse 3, and his opening trustworthy saying in 1.15 that God wants to save sinners. There's the flow of the argument, as Becky reminded us too. God's great concern in the letter is the salvation of the world. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, at the center of that salvation plan is not some great evangelist on the TV or on the streets. At the center of the plan is us, the local church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, standing, if you can picture this, in the midst of a world in which God is pouring out his gracious gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the key, I think, to the letter of 1 Timothy. And so, can I ask you, is it really likely in that context that God would lumber us with a way of life that is designed to hamper and frustrate that very mission of the church? Of course not. On the contrary, this is crucial to the mission. So that's my aim then, to show you that this passage is clear, that it's beautiful, and that it's strategic. Well, Joe's already prayed, but why don't we ask for God's help again? Let's uh, pray again for God's help before we turn to the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us at the mercy of changing fads and fashions, but have revealed your timeless truth to us in the Bible, so that if we live your way, trusting in Christ for all things, we might truly thrive now in this fallen world and into eternity, and that we might hold out your glorious gospel to a dying world. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us now to have soft hearts, to have open ears as we listen to your word, And we pray that you give us the grace to receive it with joy, to live it out fearlessly, that we might be shaped into the likeness of Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. Well, it will help us if we have the passage open, and also you'll find an outline that we'll be following on the inside of that sheet. And the first heading you'll see is God's salvation plan for the world in 1 to 7. And we begin with Paul's request to pray for all to be saved, verses 1 to 4. Look with me then at verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Remember, Paul has just said to Timothy, fight the good fight, silence the false teachers, turn this church that is looking inward outward. How is he to do that? Well, notice what's on Paul's mind here is that salvation plan of God. You can see it in the word all, which actually occurs six times in the six verses. He wants prayers for all, verse 1, for all in authority, verse 2, 
because God wants all to be saved, verse 4, and Jesus has given himself for all, verse 6, and then verse 7, so the message of the gospel can go out to all people, even the Gentiles. So how is Timothy to turn this church that is looking inwards, outwards, first priority? First of all, he says, get the church praying for world mission. This is the thing that is going to sort the false teachers out. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't expect Timothy necessarily to engage directly with the false teaching. There may be a place for that. But the thing that's really going to sort the false teachers out is to pray for world mission. Because in the contrast to the false teacher's narrowness, God himself is on about salvation. And if the church understands God's heartbeat, they will pray for the evangelization of the world with some urgency. That's why you get those four different sorts of prayers. We're not meant to kind of understand them as, a, you know, here's an intercession, here's a request, here's a thanksgiving. It's just that if we get God's heartbeat for the mission of the world, we're going to pray in all sorts of different ways with some urgency. It's in that context that the purpose of praying for kings and all those in authority becomes clear. See, these authorities, even in Paul's day, or especially in Paul's day, have the power to silence Christians and close churches and impose all sorts of conditions that will hamper the gospel. And so we pray for authorities, not so we can have a quiet life as an end in itself. This is not the Captain Haddock prayer. You know Captain Haddock, his big dream in the turmoil of his adventures with, with Tintin was just to have a quiet life so he can smoke his pipe and be left in peace. And that, that's how this can sound. Can't it? This is the Captain Haddock prayer. Just leave us alone from the turmoil of the world to have our meetings, to read our books, and to smoke our pipes in peace. But no, this is not the Captain Haddock prayer. Paul wants us to be allowed to live in peace, not as an end in itself, but so the Christian mission can be unhampered, so the church can continue to advance God's mission. And this is what he makes explicit in verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now just a, a, an aside here, really, I do think this ought to re, sort of cause us to review our priorities in prayer, whether in our small groups or on our own or in church or in families, because it is so easy, isn't it, to slip into that habit of always praying for the immediate problems, the things that affect our personal circle, our health issues, our children and their happiness, jobs and careers and decisions and so on. And please don't mishear me. I'm not saying we should not bring all those things before the Lord. If I'm sick, I, I do want people to, to pray, certainly. But you'll notice that those immediate concerns are never Paul's priority, even when he is in prison. Do you ever notice? He doesn't ask people to pray, get me out of prison, or when he's sick. No, Paul's priority is always the mission of God, and under that big priority, everything else finds its proper place. We must pray for all to be saved. And then in 5 to 7, we must pray for all to be saved because there is only one way to be saved. The desire of God's salvation, God to save all, as I've said before and as we'll see again, is the heartbeat of this letter. This is why Paul, uniquely in these letters to Timothy and Titus, refers to God as God our Saviour. The God who rules the world is a God who is biased towards saving, if I can put it that way. He is bent on it. 
This is his desire. This is what he wants. But that's a difficulty, isn't it? In what sense does God want all people to be saved in verse 4? In what sense can an all-powerful God want all people to be saved? And if he wants it, why doesn't he do it? Well, notice that verse 5 begins with the word for. God's desire is that all people to be saved. For, here is the explanation. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. What is the outcome of God's desire that all might be saved? Well, it's not that, God, that all people will be saved or that there is some overlooking of justice in the end or some kind of vague universalism. Now, the outcome of God's desire for all to be saved is verse 5, that God has put in place the most gracious and powerful salvation plan so that anybody can be saved, a plan that can save anybody and everyone. Follow Paul's logic with me in three steps then. First, Paul makes a fundamental statement about reality. He says, there is one God. This was actually the basic affirmation that every Jew stated first thing in the morning and last thing at night from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, think about this. Is that good news or bad news that there is one God? Well, it's good news. It's good news for the superstitious. It's good news for the pagan worshipper who all their lives lives in fear of pleasing or offending the gods. There is only one God. There is one God who rules this world, the God who made you. There is only one God you need be worried about who will hold you to account at the end. All your religious efforts and all your superstitions, you need not worry about for another moment. There is one God. It is good news. But it's also bad news, isn't it? Because that statement from Deuteronomy goes on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so if you haven't done that, and no one has ever treated God in that way, loved God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength, then it means that every one of us is estranged from God. Every one of us needs saving. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man, woman, straight, gay, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, progressive, labor, Lib Dem, conservative. I've moved out of the first century now, you'll notice. Scottish, Irish, Ukrainian, Russian, English, vegan, carnivore. Are you a human being? I said that because of the, I did see some vegan pano chocolate that I think might be coming out, but... It's another topic. Are you a human being this morning? Then you need saving. God wants to save you. His bias is to save you. And this is why we need to listen carefully to the second step in his logic. If there is one God and no one has treated him as God and all needs saving, then the only way back to God must be the way he has provided. And that way is Jesus. Verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. The mediator is the one 
who represents God to man and man to God, so the two can be reconciled. That is what is needed. And here is Jesus, a perfect man who was also God. And in his infinitely worthy, sacrificial death becomes the only possible way back to a holy God for all sinful rebels. Remember, that's what Paul said had happened to him in verse 14. He had found himself a sinner, the worst of sinners. And the grace of God had been poured out on him abundantly when he trusted in Christ. And he says that salvation is now open for all and all need it. And so the third step in the logic should therefore be no surprise. God wants all to be saved. He has provided that way through Jesus and therefore all need to hear, which is what he says in verse 7. For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. If all need saving and there is only one way to be saved, then part of God's salvation plan is that the message of salvation will go out to the nations. This is the truth that drives Paul. This is the truth that is meant to turn this inward-looking church that has been turned inwards by the false teachers outwards. And this is the truth that is meant to drive us as a local church. God is saviour and his gospel must go out. Which is why I think that it's verse 5, not verse 12, that is actually the most offensive and controversial verse in the whole letter, isn't it? Because this is the reality that denies every other religion, philosophy, and faith. The Christian gospel is exclusive. It's the narrow way. It's the narrow road that leads to salvation. And therefore, it's offensive because it's only Jesus who can save. But it's the Christian gospel that is broad, universal, all-encompassing, because it's only Jesus who can save. And so the message must go out to all. And this is the loving thing, isn't it? The building is on fire. There is only one door that leads to safety. There's nothing loving about leaving people to pick whatever door they fancy for the sake of not offending them. The Christian message must go out. This is the heartbeat of the letter. Paul traces this initiative right back to the heart of God. God is a God who desires salvation. But now here's the thing that I've become clear about studying the letter recently and I hope we're getting clear on. And it's very important for us to understand and to hear and to keep coming back to that this mission, this salvation plan of God does not depend on little you and little me as lone ranger evangelists gritting our teeth and going out to evangelize the world. We are in a sense to do that. Each Christian is to be ready to share the gospel with their neighbors, with those who are. So there is a, there is a place that we play in our verbal evangelism to the, to the non-Christian world. But the task is given to the local church as a whole, as a fellowship, as a partnership to the household of God. And in 1 Timothy, Paul wants this saving gospel to echo lovingly, courageously, immovably, from the church into the world in the way we do life. And that is the link to the next part of the passage because part of the way we will do that, amazingly, counterintuitively perhaps, counterculturally certainly, is through the right ordering of relationships within the church 
in which men and women live in such a way that embraces the way God has made them. So God's salvation plan advanced in 8 to 15. As I said earlier, verse 8 begins the same way verse 1 begins, with a then or therefore, which connects 8 to 15, which has gone before, which is the advance of the gospel. In verse 4, Paul said that, he wants all, that God wants all men, and the word there refers to humanity, not males, to be saved. Now, a different word is used that means males, and he's going to spell out how men and women, in their different ways, can live together in church in such a way that advances the gospel. And it begins in 8 to 10 with each of them using what I'm calling spiritual influence in contrast to the physical influence that is the common temptation of each gender. See what I'm saying? Each gender, Paul says, has a particular temptation to use physical influence and Paul wants them to stop that and use spiritual influence. What is the temptation for men? Well, in verse 8, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and disputing. For men, the temptation in physical influence is to use force. For women, the temptation is to cultivate outward glory, and instead he wants them to cultivate inner godliness. So first then, he wants men to pray instead of using force. Verse 8, the anger and disputing he mentions may be one result of the false teaching. We know from chapter 1 that this was being promoted by certain men, and we know from chapter 6 that it led to all kinds of quarrels and fights. But notice he wants men everywhere to pray, not just in Ephesus. So I think Paul probably has in mind a particular masculine tendency that stops men from praying, men try to fix things by force, don't they? See, think about it. There's a problem. The boiler's broken. The car's broken down. The redundancy note has come. Whatever the particular worldly problem, do you know many men whose first reaction would be to say, okay, before we do anything else, We're going to pray. I hope that some of you do. But I think there'll be a rarity. It's more likely that they'll pick up the toolbox, pick up the phone, call a meeting, kick the cat, write a check, send an email, or if things are really bad, write a stiff letter to somebody. (laughs) See, men, generally speaking, are doers. Men are fighters. I have this battle every morning. When I get to my desk, every fiber of my being is convincing me to switch on the computer and get something done, which is why Paul talks about raising hands. The lifting of the hands is not important. What's important is that the hands are used to pray in contrast to fighting. So Paul wants men to do the opposite of what is normal, exercising physical, worldly power, and to lead the family and the church family in prayer. And of course, what he wants them to pray for, he's already made clear in the previous section there, to pray, first of all, for the advance of the mission. Now, this does not mean that women are not to pray. Of course not, but I think he wants men to take the lead here. This, in Paul's mind, is a manly thing to do. 
What is the Christian alpha male? What does he look like? The six-pack from the gym? No, he's somebody who raises his hands in prayer. That is what Paul thinks is manly. Now, the women, too, are to exercise the opposite of normal worldly influence for their gender. Verse 9. I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, this is where our society will begin to feel uncomfortable with what Paul is saying. I've been imagining, as I've been sort of writing this, the, you, know, you know the growl that the dog makes in the back of his throat before the real kind of, you know, the, the, the little growl is just beginning here as the culture kind of listens to this. The hackles are being raised at this point, but the worst growl is coming in a few verses' time. See, is this first-century Jewish male seriously telling women today how they can and cannot have their hair? And yes, he is, with all the authority of God. The also, in verse 9, literally likewise, connects this again with what has gone before. In other words, we are to link what Paul is saying here about women's hairdos and makeup and clothing. We are to link that detail of life with this eternal salvation plan that is going out to all the world. That's what we are to do. God is in the business of saving people through the gospel of his perfect son who gave himself on the cross as a ransom for all. And so the point is, if you need a bigger deal than that to influence the way you dress, then I don't know what it is. Now, of course, what he's not saying is you have to grow around in a sack and be drab and look like the Amish. No offense to the Amish, but he's not saying that. Nor is he saying, and I did notice a few braided hairs, he's not saying if you've braided your hair this morning or if you're wearing gold or pearl or whatever, you're being ungodly. He's not saying that. Look at what he is saying. He is saying that there is a way of dressing that he's trying to use the physical influence of outward glory in a way that is inappropriate for someone who's been transformed from the inside out by the gospel. He's saying, actually, if you're a Christian woman, you've been transformed, your heart has been set on fire, why would you need expensive clothes, gold, jewelry, braided hair to influence the world, to advance the mission? Because you have now your Christian character instead. Those three words, modesty, decency, propriety, and good works that advance the gospel. We could spend a lot more time on this because all of these words are carefully chosen. But what good works does he have in mind? Well, have a look at 5 verse 10 just by way of example where he mentions women there who are known for bringing up children, for showing hospitality, for washing the feet of the saints, for helping those in trouble, for devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So Paul is saying the woman like that has a much more powerful influence than somebody who just uses bling. And incidentally, of course, if you're an unmarried man and you're looking for a potential wife, or if you're an unmarried woman and you would like to find a potential husband, then this is the kind of person that you're looking to be or looking for, isn't it? Someone who demonstrates that transformation of character by their actions, not by how they dress. But Paul has more to say about how men and women are to live in their distinctive roles in church for the advancement of the mission. And this brings us to 11 to 15, delighting indifference. 
Now, let's think what Paul says, firstly, and then secondly, why he says it. What Paul says, have a look at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. First thing to notice is that Paul wants and expects women to learn, which in itself, in this context, is revolutionary. Unlike the secular culture around him, very much like Jesus, Paul did not believe that learning and theology and study were men-only spaces and women should confine themselves to the recipe books. He expects women equally, along with the whole church family, to come to church, to engage brains, to grapple with the word of God and to learn. But notice that learning requires what he calls full submission. Submission to the man who's teaching the word and submission to the word of God itself. And I just want to point out that this is true for everybody, not just women. If you think about it, learning requires submission. If you're a teacher or a university lecturer, what do you want from your class? I take it you want submission. Without the submission, the learning cannot happen. Teaching is connected to authority. See, put it this way. Just imagine I come up to you over coffee and ask you, how many miles is it to Milnthorpe for the prayer tea next week? And you say it's 15 miles by the M6, which it is. And supposing you say to, the, to you, and I say to you, no, I don't want it to be 15 miles. I want it to be five miles. Well, I've learned nothing from the conversation. I haven't submitted to the truth. Learning requires submission to the truth. Interestingly, understanding a passage like this requires submission from all of us, which is ironic because so many people don't want this passage to say what it says. But it requires submission. Now, if we understand that learning requires submission, verse 12 is quite straightforward. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. If learning and submission are connected, then teaching and authority are connected. They're not exactly the same, but they are closely connected. That's why, as we'll see next week, Paul says an elder must be able to teach. Because as the elder of the church, the leader of the church, teaches God's word... He's not imparting interesting information. He is exercising authority over the church. That's how it is done. And learning takes place as the whole church submits to the word of God. So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over the man, we must not overemphasize the or. Paul is not talking about two different things. He's talking about two very closely related things. And so let me paraphrase verse 12 like this. He's saying, I permit no woman to teach the mixed congregation of the church family or to have authority over a man which she would be doing if she taught. I'll say that again just to make sure it's clear. Here's the paraphrase of verse 12. I permit no woman to teach in the mixed congregation of the church family or to have authority over a man which she would if she taught in the church. 
Now, this helps us, doesn't it? Because it clearly means he's not forbidding any kind of teaching of women. In fact, the word translated silent, I think, is an over-translation, and it was encouraging to see that the 2011 version of the NIV has changed it to quiet, because it is, in fact, the same word as quiet in verse 2, which doesn't mean silent, it means a sort of a quiet spirit without causing trouble. And there are plenty of examples in the Bible of women teaching in all sorts of contexts. You only need to think of Priscilla or Aquila, someone like that. Um, Priscilla, wasn't it? And um, other places in the Bible where women teach. And last Sunday afternoon, I was privileged to sneak in at the back to our Titus 2 evening and heard two superb talks right here by women in our church. Neither is he saying, of course, that women are not to exercise any authority of any kind. This is not about whether it's right to have a female prime minister or boss or queen. This is about the church family. But it is prohibiting something. It is prohibiting the regular authoritative teaching of the word of God in the mixed congregation. He is saying that. He says that role is for men. Well, that's what he says. Let's think now why he says it. And he says it because God is a God of order. And if men and women live within the order God has built into creation, rather than working against it, they will flourish. And here's the thing we mustn't forget. If that order is seen in the church, the world, even though its hackles might rise, the world will see something beautiful and the mission will be advanced. Now, I'm going to have to cover 13 and 14 fairly briefly and we can explore them in more detail in a way that Joel will mention later. But first of all, but I'll see if I can make it clear in the time we've got. First, God is a God of order. And in verse 13 and 14, that was always the plan. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. This tells us, doesn't it, that this is not just something for Ephesus, this is for all time, for all people, because Paul takes us right back to creation. Nor for a moment do I think he is saying, based on the fact that Eve was deceived, that women are more gullible than men and so should be barred from teaching. Now, what he is doing is taking us back to the creation of humanity in Genesis 2. And then he's taken us back to the rebellion of that creation order in Genesis 3. And I think the logic is really quite straightforward if you keep that context in mind. See, verse 13 is simply saying that God made men and women different in order. Adam first and then Eve. They are equal but different. They have different complementary roles in which women, uh, men lead and women are to submit to their leadership. See, think of it this way. God could have made Adam and Eve at the same time, couldn't he? God, I take it, can multitask. But he chose to make them in order, Adam first and then Eve. But then, verse 14, Paul wants us to think about Genesis 3, where the order was thrown into reverse by the deception of Satan. The man abdicated his responsibility to lead. The woman listened to Satan and was deceived. The nature of the deception was such that God hasn't got it right, that he isn't thinking of your best interests, 
that if you throw off God's order, you'll be better off. That will be true freedom. And so that's what happened. And the whole creation got thrown into reverse gear by believing Satan's lie that they would be better off without God's order. And in each case, the one who submits throws off the submission in favor of self-rule, the animal over the woman, the woman over the man, the man over God, everything thrown into reverse gear. That's what 13 and 14 are saying. God is a God of order. And if men and women are to flourish, they will do so by living within the grain of God's order, where men and women are equal but different, have different roles, rather than working against it. Well, this is his point then in verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. Again, this is nowhere near as complicated as people want to make it. It's easy to see what it cannot mean. It clearly, unfortunately, cannot mean that all women of faith will be kept safe in childbirth. Nor can it mean that people will be saved by the birth of the child, by the woman, that is Jesus being born to Mary. Nor can it mean that women will earn their salvation by having children. It's hardly likely, is it, that Paul is going to contradict what he's just said in verses 5 and 6, where the only way to be saved is by putting faith in the one mediator between God, the man, Jesus Christ. But, and here's the thing we so easily forget, and I want to underline this, salvation in the New Testament is a lifelong project, not a momentary miracle. Salvation in the New Testament is a lifelong project, not a momentary miracle. Paul knows that God alone saves. But part of the way God saves is by enabling the believer to persevere to the end in faith, in love, in hope. And to do so in the situation that God has put him or her in when he was saved. You can see examples of this all through the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, for example, continue in what you've learned. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling because we're saved now, we're saved in the future, we're being saved right now. Or look over at 4 verse 16, for example, where he says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Seems a strange thing for Paul to say, that you can save yourself. But he's just saying what is completely normal in the New Testament, that salvation is a lifelong project, not a momentary miracle. God saves us through our perseverance to the end. And therefore, if you drop the word childbearing, just read verse 15 again. But women will be saved if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. It's a completely standard New Testament thing to say, women will be saved if they continue to trust the gospel. And so what's the childbearing thing doing there? Well, Paul is simply saying here that women will be saved as women. The childbearing doesn't just refer to childbirth, it refers to motherhood, to the whole business of rearing children, which Paul is saying is the usual role and situation which women distinctly find themselves in. 
He's just saying, therefore, that women will be saved if they continue in the end in dependence, in their dependence on Jesus as Savior as women for whom childbearing is a normal and distinct way of life. Now, why, therefore, is this so hard to hear in our culture? Why are the hackles rising when we talk about this? Well, I think it's because we live in a culture where motherhood is hated. Motherhood has been belittled by the feminists and now by the environmentalists that we are actually killing ourselves. Like some women in Ephesus, motherhood has been talked about as if it's beneath the dignity of women. It's a messy business, motherhood, isn't it? And in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, you'll see hints that some women were thinking this is just beneath them. And it is a messy business, as uh, some in our church family are, are finding out. And uh, my daughter, who's due this week, just said to me yesterday, you know, our, our life is never going to be the same again after this week, and it's not. There's a lot of mess, and you get your hands dirty. And what our culture has done is said this is beneath the dignity of women. That's what feminism has done. So this week, I don't know if you noticed in the uh, paper on the front page of The Guardian, that we have now hit the lowest birth rate of women since 1941. Isn't that striking? What was happening in 1941? Millions of men were fighting a war. Millions of men now are not fighting a war. This is a childlessness we have inflicted on ourselves. And I wonder if you heard the Pope recently saying that instead of children, people get dogs. He calls this the cultural degradation of Western society where fur babies with four legs are replacing human ones with two in our hearts, in our homes, in our wallets. Or, as a non-Christian friend referred to me this, uh, told me about this week, there was a paper uh, published by the Lund University in Sweden whose central thesis was that the most environmentally destructive action a person can take, two orders of magnitude worse than owning a diesel car and eating meat, is having a child. It's countercultural. Emma and I were talking to a uh, female school leaver recently, four A stars, heading to Cambridge. Emma said, so what are you doing after university? And we were expecting her to have this high-flying career mapped out. And she said, well, actually, to tell you the truth, all I want to do is have, have babies. Countercultural, but in line with God's creation. And yes, Paul is fully aware how tragic it is when infertility stops married couples having children. And yes, elsewhere, Paul commends the choice of the single life for men and women for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that is a better choice for the sake of the gospel than being married. He himself is single and has embraced that life. But all he's saying here is that motherhood is normal for most women. This is the uniquely powerful role of bringing children into the world and raising them up. As a friend of mine puts it on this passage, instead of ruling downwards by trying to teach, women are to raise upwards by childbearing. Women are not to raise, rule downwards, they are to raise upwards. And who would dare to say in the final analysis, when all things in this world come to their end in the sovereign plan of God, that the raising up of children by mothers is any less significant than the ruling down 
of men who preach. Well, let's conclude. And I said at the beginning that uh, this passage, which at first seems so full of difficulties, so bound to cause embarrassment, so frustrating to the mission, is the opposite of those things. And I hope that we can see now that it's clear, that it's beautiful, and it's strategic. Firstly, I hope I've shown you that it's clear. There is much more we could say, of course. I've skimmed through it. Uh, We'll take a slower trip through 11 to 15 in the seminar that Joe will mention at the end. But I hope that for now I've shown you that the apparent difficulties are much more a product of our culture's hang-ups than what Paul actually says in the text. In the end, Paul is simply asking men and women to live in the way God has made them. Which is why, secondly, I hope we can see that it's beautiful. Paul's use of Genesis 2 and 3 makes it clear that delighting in difference between men and women is to work with the grain of creation, not against it. That men and women are equal but different, with different and distinctive asymmetrical roles in family and church life. And that this is not a matter of Paul's personal opinion or something that's going on in Ephesus, but it's about trusting our good and loving creator, taking him at his word, the very thing that Adam and Eve failed to do. It is ultimately about being happy in your own skin, about finding true freedom from our good creator rather than falling again for the deception of the serpent. And therefore, the really good news this morning is that in the kindness of God, God saves us just as we are. You don't have to become someone else to be saved. On the contrary, becoming a Christian frees you to be the very person God made you to be. Because this great salvation comes through the blood of the mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, who loved women and men enough to die for them. It's a wonderful thing that Paul is saying, if you listen to it, that women as women and men as men will not miss out on the great, gracious salvation. And so rejoice in who God has made you to be. If you're a woman, rejoice. If you're a man, rejoice. And the perfect salvation that Jesus has achieved is yours for free. But finally, and most surprisingly, far from being something that is going to frustrate the mission, this is strategic. So the surprise here is that this seems so countercultural. It is the thing that is getting us branded as the bad guys in modern secular liberal Britain today. This is one of the reasons that liberal churches and Bible readers who take a different view actually believe that by changing the message and by preaching a different message to what I've given you this morning are actually serving the mission by making the Bible's teaching more acceptable to the wider culture. But I think that's a tragic mistake. And where such teaching prevails, the irony is that those churches almost universally are shrinking and dying. Of course they are because they've got nothing distinctive to say to the society that society hasn't already told itself. And therefore, it should be no surprise that this is the very area that Satan will choose to attack God's people. 
it should be no surprise to us that Satan will use the same deception that he used at the beginning to overthrow God's creation order and to diminish the glory of God. We need to courageously, clearly stick to our guns and hold fast to what the Bible teaches on this. This is part of fighting the good fight. Last year, the staff team read a book called The Benedict Option, where Rob Dreher says that given the typical millennial, uh, sorry, given what the typical millennial believes about the church being out of step with society on this, you would think that churches that have liberalized their teaching on sexuality, like many of the mainstream Protestant denominations have, would be booming. They're not, they're cratering. Orthodox churches, he says, have something to say to the world about this. Instead of capitulating to the world and changing what the Bible says to be acceptable to the world, they should go back and drink of the well of the gospel and offer a true, alternative, transcendent story. I think that's absolutely right. Paul's great concern, as we'll see more and more as we go through the letter, is that the Christian church displays God's order to a watching world, and this order promotes the gospel because it's offering something true and different. And it's when this order is reversed, when the church becomes just like the world, that the world has every reason to dismiss the church's teaching as irrelevant. Why is that the case? Because it's right. This is hardwired into human nature and into creation. The great gospel of Jesus liberates us, not from the way we were made, but for the way we were made, so that men and women can relate as we were created to do. It's as we build the church through the word, as men and women in complementary partnership, that we reveal God to the world. Well, let's pray that that will be true for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this short passage in your word, far from being something we should be embarrassed about is an embarrassment of riches. And we are sorry for the times that we have feared the condemnation of the world. We pray instead that we will be gripped again by your salvation plan in Christ. And that as men and women that you have created us to be, we will delight to pursue our roles at home and church for the display of your beautiful order to the world. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given us all a part to play in advancing the mission. And we thank you most of all for our Savior, Jesus, the mediator, who stepped into this world so that each of us, whoever we are, can find grace, salvation, perseverance, and make it to the end, trusting in him. In his name we pray. Amen.